0: Hey listeners, how are you all doing? Didn't feel like summer just came into bloom and we saw the first pickings of berries. September is just around the corner, and I am so looking forward to the fall season because it is my favorite season of the year. This is your host Sadia Khan, refreshed and jittery, ready for an all-star immigrantly lineup this fall. The team took a much-needed hiatus after wrapping up season 14 with Thea Pham's interview. Thea's episode was personal to me because it highlighted the dynamic between parents and a child. If you have listened to the episode, please send us your feedback and we will play it during one of our upcoming interviews. Just email us a voice memo or DM us a comment. You can email us at info at This fall, we are also introducing a new format of Immigrantly, doing away with seasons and letting the weekly stories speak for themselves. We are excited to introduce this change with our first two-part episode. To keep our content engaging to our listeners, we will divide the conversation into two episodes between two different guests. Both episodes are unified by the way they center on the theme of how countries prioritize strategic allyship over human rights allegations. But if you think these leaders are bad, You need to meet India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. He and his far-right Hindu nationalist party, the BJP, are bent on creating a lost Hindu kingdom. They call it the Hindu Rashtra. They've been in office since 2014, openly championing Hindu nationalist supremacist ideology. Scholars are now literally warning about genocide there. Minorities, from Christians to Muslims and beyond, are facing the greatest threats to their existence since India became independent. Journalist Rana Ayub today responded to an enforcement-directed case against her. The ED has accused her of misappropriation of up to 1.77 crores. Arvind, of course, this whole battle on whether this is a political vendetta against Rana Ayub, who of course is known as a vocal critic of the Modi government. She said she's been targeted and she's scrolled often online with the most horrific language for being a Muslim woman journalist. Enforcement-directed has attached around 1.7 crore of journalist Rana Ayub.
1: In a case of money laundering, the enforcement directorate taking cognizance of UP police affair
0: alleges that Rana Ayub raised somewhere around 2.7 crore through this keto, which is
1: a crowdfunding platform, which also includes foreign contribution and the agency also accuses her of using these funds for her personal expenses. Since the United States is one of the biggest democracies in the world and it calls itself a superpower. I think it needs to speak louder. It's not just about India. It's about the way human rights are being marauded and being killed by the largest democracies in the world is a matter of shame, which is why each one of us must speak up.
0: In today's episode, we will be talking with Rana Ayub, an Indian journalist and columnist with the Washington Post. She's the author of the investigative book, Gujarat Files, Anatomy of a Cover-Up, published in 2016. It is the account of an eight-month-long undercover investigation into the Gujarat riots in India, fake encounters and murder of state home minister Haran Pandya. Posing as Methali Dayagi, a filmmaker from the American Film Institute Conservatory, Rana met bureaucrats and top cops in Gujarat who held pivotal positions in the state between 2001 and 2010. The transcripts of the operation revealed the complicity of the state and its officials in crimes against humanity. Her book, by the way, became an instant bestseller which all came at a cost as it opened up the doors to a vicious social media campaign led by the Hindu nationalists and the Bharatiya Janta party supporters also known as BJP, a ruling political party in India. As a Muslim journalist in Hindu majority nation who has numerously spoken out against the Prime Minister Narendra Modi, Rana has been the target of investigations by the government and online hate Her bank account was frozen twice to run investigations concerning money laundering and taxes and she was formally charged with defamation. Death and rape threats are no strangers on social media and any chance to leave the country will likely be stopped by immigration. Before we start the interview, I want to set the stage for our listeners with some statistics. India led the world in requests to censor tweets by journalists news portals between July to December 2021. In 2022, India was ranked 150th among 180 countries in Press Freedom Index published by Reporters Without Borders or RSF. Violence against journalists was one of the reasons cited by RSF for declining press freedom in India. Now, you must be asking the same questions that I have. So why isn't this concerning to more nations? Why aren't we hearing about these violations occurring in India, in the United States and other Western countries? We will unpack those and other questions today with Rana. So let's get started. So I am really excited to have you here, Rana. And before we delve into all the difficult questions, I just want to know, how is your heart today?
1: My heart is brimming with optimism, but also with concerns about the country and the way things are going downhill for pluralism and for democratic values. And of course, multiple cases filed against me. So every day I fight a new case by the government of the day. So I wake up excited about the day. By the end of it, it's like, hmm, I could do
0: better. You're doing an amazing job, Rana. And I was listening to one of your interviews in which you said that people shouldn't call you brave because if they call you brave, then they are normalizing the hate and the vitriol that is targeted at you. And I was wondering, if not brave, then what would you prefer to be called? Honestly, I
1: don't know if there's any other word. I just would like to be a journalist and a human with a conscience. That's probably what it is. I know everybody believes that this is brave because the times that we live in, Mm -hmm. even the bare minimum is considered brave, where we are not trying to sugarcoat our words and our facts and our truth and our report. But I do believe time and again that each time we call somebody brave, we are placing a great burden on their shoulders that, oh, she's brave, she will do this. Mm. Oh, she's brave, she will take on the government. Oh, she's brave, she'll be fine even if she's jailed. But the thing is, at the end of the day, I'm also a human with a heart. A heart which is as sensitive, a soul that is as sensitive to criticism and to constant intimidation. So yeah, I think... When we use terms like brave and put us on a pedestal, somewhere down the line, you do not allow us to be human, to feel the pain and to feel scared and to be vulnerable. And I want to be all of these. I want to be scared. I want to be vulnerable. I want to cry. I want to break down. I want to be all of this.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So
1: I'm just happy to be called a human with a conscience.
0: I love that, Rana. And in the midst of all the heat and the vicious campaign that's been going on against you, good things are happening, right? Congratulations are in order. You are part of the University of Chicago Institute of Politics Fall 2022 fellows. Oh, how I wish I could be a fly on the wall for your intellectually motivating and your Honest conversations. What are you hoping to achieve from this fellowship? So, the fellowship is basically a leadership
1: program wherein senators and diplomats and writers and journalists come together to ideate and to discuss. So, this time around, we are discussing the fundamentals of democracy and what better than getting somebody who is a journalist from what we call the world's largest democracy. What the world is witnessing right now and the world really knows by and large is the India of Gandhi and Nehru, but the India that we live today is going downhill to the path of fascism right. and India is not isolated in this case, Our democracies world over resemble like the worst version of themselves, the most scariest version of themselves. So I'm going to the University of Chicago, I'll be talking to students who will have a lot of questions for me, I'm sure. I'll be speaking to change makers and leaders and also get their perspective on how we got here and how do we redeem ourselves as citizens of these countries and how do we protect the democratic and secular character of the country that we live in and how do we leave behind a legacy for the next generation, a legacy that they're proud of So I'm looking forward to learning and unlearning in Chicago and also to pass on my insights and my truths
0: as they are. And I just hope it's a fresh new perspective. Rana, talking about how India got there. Now, India touts itself as one of the largest democracies. And growing up in Pakistan, I was obsessed with Bollywood. And I had this romanticized version of, relationship between India and Pakistan. But I've seen the change, the transition, ever since Narendra Modi took over. And I wonder, as a journalist who's working within that space, who is speaking truths to power, how do you think India got to where it is right now?
1: I think that's a question most countries in Asia right now need to ask themselves, whether it's India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, where we see our people on the streets how did we get here? How did we as nations get to this position where we are having this conversation on how to redeem ourselves? Right. I can talk about India. I think this shift towards right-wing nationalism over the last couple of years, this shift towards a skewed idea of patriotism, where possibly me speaking to you as somebody of Pakistani descent can hurt sentiments, then possibly me listening to a pakistani artist get hurt sentiments or like yesterday i saw this video of a muslim man lynched on acquisition of cattle theft i don't remember growing up in this india but the india that i grew up in was not very different from the india of today i grew up in an india where the babri masjid was demolished when i was a 9 year old And I saw communal riots at a very early age. I was a refugee at a very early age. So I have seen the telltale signs of fascism from a very early age. So what's happening today is something that I have been witnessing in bits and pieces. When I was very young, I went to Gujarat as a relief worker during the Gujarat riots. That's again what I saw, anti-Muslim genocide in all its hatred, in its deepest form. So yes, every day has been a progression towards the India that we see today. From the India of 1992, where the Babri Masjid demolition was seen as a blot on democracy, to the India of 2002, where a thousand Muslims were massacred, while those in powers looked the other way, to present day, when they now want to demolish every odd structure that is built by Mughals and Muslims. So, I think it's only been a gradual progression that has been enabled by a great deal of spinelessness of people in public life. It has been enabled by the indifference of the well-meaning, and it has been enabled by the victimhood of a majority. That believes that its resources are being taken over by the minority of this country.
0: Recently, Amir Khan, I am a big fan of his movies. He is India's leading Bollywood star. He's being attacked and is having to defend his love for India.
1: My thi ki jaisi hai. par jawe, man nahi Kya?
0: His film, Lal Singh Chada, is slated for release soon. But then there's this whole internet, Twitter campaign, hashtag boycott Lal Singh Chada, which is trending on Twitter, right? So Muslims in all different facets of Indian life are being targeted. But then I also see, as you said, silent majority in entertainment industry and other industries. Why do you think that's happening?
1: You see, this government has set up some very, very clear examples. Last year, we saw Shah Rukh Khan's son. Shah, I mean, it doesn't get bigger than Shah Rukh Khan, not just for Bollywood, but he's an ambassador of India to the world. All of us, our idea of love and romance starts with Shah Rukh Khan and ends with Shah Rukh Khan. He's the king of romance. Nobody ever saw him as a Muslim superstar, Right. But the way his son Aryan Khan was arrested in a drugs case last year and the way he was kept behind bars was a lesson to the entire Bollywood that if one of the biggest superstar's son will not be spared for a hint of rebellion, a hint of dissent, then who are you guys? It was also a message to the 220 million Muslims in India that some of the most powerful Muslims can be targeted and who are you? Shah Rukh Khan in the past has been called a terrorist by the Chief Minister of Uttar Pradesh, a member of a terrorist organization from Pakistan. He has been asked to go to Pakistan. He has been asked to prove his patriotism. Amir Khan has had to say, despite spending three decades in the film industry, despite producing and acting in some of the biggest nationalistic films that instill patriotism, whether it's Lagan or whether it is the film on the 1857 rebellion. Here is a man who has tried his best, more than others, to instill this sense of patriotism. But after three decades of his glorious career, if he has to tell the country that he loves India and he wishes people to not look at it any other way, But I think it's a matter of crying shame for each one of us. If a Sef Ali Khan names his children Taimur and Jahangir and there's a Twitter storm over his personal choice, that's a matter of shame for the country. And these are the privileged Muslims of India. I'm not even talking about the less privileged. Mm. But again, this is a message and the fact that none of the people in Bollywood are coming out in solidarity with these three Muslim superstars because I don't know how do you blame them because they all want to save their job. They all want to stay away from investigations by central agencies in case there is a sign of dissent. Deepika Padukone, one of the biggest superstars went to JNU to show solidarity with the students movement three years ago and you saw her being questioned by the NCB last year, the Narcotics Control Bureau. So. When you say that a vindictive action could be a possible consequence and irrespective of who you are, there will be a backlash against your stand, people will take a step back. A lot of well-meaning friends, I was meeting some celebrities in the evening. These are people from all walks of life and they said, why don't you take a step back? It's not easy. I mean, it could be you next. And I get that. You know, I just shrugged it off saying, come on, I mean, it's my country. But now when they say this, when they caution me, I do feel like. Yeah, they're not wrong. Their concerns are legitimate. My journalist friend, Mohammed Zubair, was arrested last month and he was released a few days ago for just a tweet because he happens to be a Muslim. Hmm. So yes, we are living in one of the most difficult times as a Muslim in India, as a minority in India. And it scares me and I live in fear that it only gets worse from here.
0: This episode is sponsored by the Muslim Voices Project at Indiana University. The Muslim Voices Project highlights local, regional, and global voices to explore the complexities of Islam and the diverse perspectives of 1.8 billion Muslims. Find them online at muslimvoices.indiana.edu and on Instagram at muslimvoices.org. Talking about minority, something to clarify here for listeners is that there are two hundred million Muslims. Yeah. In India, one of the largest Muslim populations, although a minority, it's 15% of Indian population. So they are pretty much an integral part of Indian societal and cultural fabric. It's difficult to wrap my head around the fact that there is such a huge population and yet these things are happening. But I want to pivot a little, Rana, and talk about what's happening on the global scale. Now, many foreign governments and international bodies have condemned the BJP's, the ruling party's discrimination of Muslims, citing actions in Kashmir, the Citizenship Amendment Act, and anti-Muslim rhetoric as particular concerns. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation, OIC, a group of 57 member states called on India to curb the, and I quote, growing spate of hatred and defamation of Islam and systemic practices against Indian Muslims. But my question to you is, Are groups that are committed to peace and justice, like the United Nations, doing enough to address human rights violations occurring in India, and what else can they do? The thing with the UN
1: and other organizations is that the way the government has demonized the term human rights, like many members of the government, many leaders of the government has already called human rights organizations as cottage industries that are basically profit-making industries if anybody from the international spectrum speaks in my solidarity or a UN special report speaks in my solidarity in any case, I'm called an agent of the US, an agent of CIA, who's trying to discredit India using foreign forces. It is a matter of shame that international bodies have to comment on our internal matter, that we are not able to keep our house in order. But as human rights organizations who are mandated to speak up for injustices everywhere across the world, I think the demand for a fair and just society in India should be louder. The UN has given statements in individual cases. UN special reporters have spoken out. And I don't blame them. Each time they speak up, the way it's spun in India, the way they divert the attention of the country, saying that agencies or organizations like HRW or UN are all paid by George Soros. I mean, insane level of propaganda insane Thursday level this afternoon india has rejected the un report calling out human rights violations in jammu and kashmir india has termed the report fallacious and motivated and even questioned the intent in bringing out such a report india has said that the report violates india's sovereignty and territorial integrity and that pakistan has refused to heed to india's repeated calls to vacate occupied territories and therefore the report is mischievous misleading and unacceptable this is the un's first of its kind report on human rights violations in jammu so it and doesn't kashmir. Matter that beyond the point what the UN says makes any difference to people in the country because they have been misled. The image of the UN and other human rights organizations has been demonized to the extent that in the eyes of the majority, in the eyes of everyday people, these are just this cottage industry whose job is to rant and bring in to India. So it is a cause for concern. Countries like the United States, Secretary Blinken has made statements. We also
0: share a commitment to our democratic values, such as protecting human rights. We regularly engage with our Indian partners on these shared values. And to that end, we're monitoring some recent concerning developments in India, including a rise in human rights abuses by some government police and prison officials.
1: The US Ambassador for Religious Freedom has made statements on the deteriorating of fundamental rights of minorities in India. And Indian television channels will do shows that who are you to speak in our personal matters and look at the U.S. and what is their moral right to speak about our affairs when there is racism. Of course, there is. The United States is no better. The United States' recorded human rights itself is checkered. Since the United States is one of the biggest democracies in the world, and it calls itself a superpower. I think it needs to speak louder and not be hypocritical where human rights are concerned and not look at India as a strategic partner, but as a democracy, a world's largest democracy. Because as I keep saying, that if the world's largest democracy has to go down under, then India is not the only country that would feel ripples. Every neighboring country, democracies around the world. Look at what's happening to Maria Ressa in Philippines. Despite winning the Nobel Peace Prize, she has been founded. So what they are doing in Philippines is setting an example to the world saying, see, we can do this to a Nobel Peace Prize awardee. We can threaten her with jail. So everybody else around the world feels emboldened that if they can do it, why can't we? This is a vicious circle and it's not just about India. It's about the way human rights are being marauded and being killed. By the largest democracies in the world is a matter of shame, which is why each one of us must speak up.
0: Absolutely. And when I think of India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, I think of geopolitics there, the vulnerability. What might erupt given all the instability and the uncertainty surrounding these countries? But I want to expand the conversation around America's role a bit, which makes sense because America prides itself on its democratic principles. But recently, Joe Biden met the prime minister of India, Narendra Modi. According to White House briefing, they met to, and I quote again, reaffirm their commitment to work together for a more prosperous, free, connected and secure world. So other words like democracy, freedom, tolerance, described the meeting. But there wasn't a single mention of Biden's response to human rights violations occurring in India. And I remember I was listening to one of your interviews and you said something along the lines, which I totally agree with. Strategic allyship it is, human rights be damned.
1: For global peace and stability, for sustainability of the planet, and for human development.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And that's what's happening. In a lot of countries, how do we make sure that countries like America are more aware and mindful of what's happening in India and are more vocal about human rights violation occurring beyond economic strategic allyship that they have with India? Do you think that's even a possibility? I think,
1: unfortunately, strategic allies will take precedence over human rights, and that's not something that's happening today. That is something that has happened historically. Right now, in the present-day scenario, vis-a-vis the war between Russia and Ukraine has put India in a position where it is being sought by the biggest superpowers in the world, When Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan, we have to pivot in a way, you know, I mean, we know that China could now act against the U.S. So the U.S. needs India as an ally and Pakistan as strategic allies. So when we are discussing what's happening in Taiwan and China, what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, in this scenario, fortunately, India has become a very significant country whose support is much needed. So will the United States or will any other country jeopardize their relationship with India over human rights? Well, who cares? When was the last time any democracy in the world really cared about human rights? Look at the Islamic countries. Why talk about the United States? Right. Look at the Islamic countries. You have Saudi Arabia, you have Dubai. What are they doing to protect the fundamental rights of Muslims across the globe? Absolutely. Look at what MBS is doing to Palestinians. So I think we are expecting a bit too much from America right now. I mean, when the spineless Muslim world that has given the highest civilian honors to those who have committed genocide of Muslims, I mean, this is the most powerful body, the body of Muslim countries, they do not even have a voice to protest. What's happening? Imran Khan invoked religion, right? Invoked Muslimness. And he spoke about what's happening in Kashmir, what's happening about human rights violations in India. But I don't remember him speaking about what's happening in China. It's a matter of shame that even something to do with religion is seen through your skewed political lens. So I think people have pick their allies. These are not allies that are made keeping in mind the human rights violations of the country. But but at this point of time, the only thing that matters is power. So human rights be damned. I don't think any country that even claims that they fight for human rights are a sham. Mm. At this point of time, there's not a single democracy that we can look up to and say, hey, this is an example that needs to be set. This country is setting an example. I think all of us are literally sitting ducks who can be targeted by our governments because those who are meant to protect us, those who are meant to speak on our behalf will look the other way because they want to be in a position where their strategic alliance will not be affected. So all of us are in a very, very dangerous position more than ever.
0: The universality of human rights, and realization of human rights is basically a fallacy.
1: I mean, it is also that we like convenient heroes. For instance, Malala has become a hero because she's a face against the Taliban brutality. She's a face of empowerment of a Afghani woman, and I love her for that. But why is a similar honor not given to a Ahad Tamimi in Palestine right. when she stands up to Israeli forces? Will she be given a peace prize? So there is an inherent hypocrisy in our selection of heroes, in our selection of who represents human rights. I mean, the best of us have chosen heroes that suit our own narrative. That's the world order we are looking at.
0: Rana, I love the way you break it down and it makes so much sense in terms of how we praise them. Not always, but most of the time, there is some hidden agenda. But in terms of journalism, right? So you work in that space, you work for The Washington Post, you have a huge platform, 1.5 million Twitter followers, and you have recognized your privilege in terms of the exposure you have and how much your voice resonates with people. But have you ever felt frustrated by how different news organizations will sideline certain stories because they don't fit in? the general narrative or the predominant discourse, whether in the United States, India, Pakistan, wherever, and how should journalists be more aware and more respectful and honest to stories that they are covering?
1: I think the biggest disappointment of this era is journalism, how journalism has become a casualty, how truth has become the casualty. In this desire of journalists to be seen, I wouldn't say pro power, but neutral. Hmm. When I learned journalism, I was told to define a clear definition of difference between the oppressor and the oppressed. But the times that we are living in, I like it how many journalism organizations like to hide their bias in the garb of neutrality, saying, oh, we are presenting both sides. If you have an oppressive government, And on the other side, you do have the oppressed who have absolutely no power, no resources to fight their battle. Then it's the job of the media to tell the story of the oppressed with the empathy that it requires and not play the game of both sides because this both sideism has become the bane of journalism globally. And it's a matter of shame how journalists around the world are losing their moral compass. I am not saying I'm the epitome of moral compass and morality in journalism. But what I see in the country, I mean, had it not been for the young independent journalists, the senior editors in India at least, the publishers, The way they are shaming the profession, I feel nauseous because these are the same people who'd come to my journalism college and gave a lecture on idealism, on what's the do's and don'ts for a good journalist, what are ethics and morality. And I see them selling their soul to the devil. And I see them prostrating to power. And I feel like throwing up on their face. I feel like what is the legacy that they are going to leave behind for the young journalists who I must say... I am so proud of them that they have still not been disillusioned by the people who were supposed to be their role models. The same is happening in America. You still see multiple publications, including the top publications, try to play this both sides in the face of oppressors. I can say that especially vis-a-vis countries like Israel, Hmm. it takes a while for any country to call out the hegemony of what's happening in Israel. I do realize my own privilege. You spoke about 1.5 million followers. Yes, it's a huge privilege, but it's also frustrating when you realize that you do have a platform thankfully i have the washington post that has always had my back through the worst and the best and i wonder what happens to those who do not have my privilege if i with all my privilege am unable to do justice and unable to spread the message and spread the word and be a witness to what's happening in india it is exhausting and it's frustrating that despite your platforms you are able to do very little that despite your platforms, you're not doing enough. And I feel like I do not do enough. I feel like I could do a lot more, but again, like I said, right in the beginning of late, I have started to factor in that I'm also human, that I do get anxiety attacks, that I do get depressed and not every day. Can I stand up to the government that some days I'm allowed to be just in bed, Mm. but yes, Journalism and the profession has let us down. Journalists, independent journalists are trying to redeem the profession, but it's going to be a long battle. And I wonder if I have personally done enough to redeem the profession or to liberate the profession from the culture of subservience and hegemony. I really hope that when I leave this world, I hope that I do leave the legacy of being independent and fiercely independent at that.
0: Rana, I've spoken to so many people about you and about this interview, and believe you me, there are so many admirers out there of your work. As I said in the beginning, what you're doing is not for the faint of heart, and you may not call yourself brave or resilient, but you're all of that. And yes, vulnerable and weak at times, because that's human conditioning, but what you're doing And the way you're fighting to salvage your country, India, is the best form of patriotism, because dissent is patriotism. If I see something wrong in Pakistan or in the United States, and if I don't speak up against it, then I am contributing to that injustice. So that's how I see your work. But Given all that you're doing, most journalists, because they're always reporting on what's happening around them in the current context, there isn't space for introspection and discussions around their mental health. And if you don't mind sharing, I was wondering, what is your current mental space and how do you take care of yourself?
1: Well, my current mental space is the same, I think. I'm perpetually edgy. I'm perpetually wondering what next I am anxious and at some point the intimidation by the government does get to me Mm. and there are days that I just lock myself in a room for days at a stretch not wanting to speak to anyone and I do believe that there is a need for a conversation on mental health of journalists which is precisely why I said right in the beginning that probably when we say brave we do not factor in that people crumble. I have crumbled, I have had breakdowns, I have begged the psychiatrist to just make me sleep and just let this pain go away. And this is so much and more journalists in conflict areas, journalists reporting on war in the Ukraine, journalists reporting on trafficking of children. There is so much that we witness, there is so much that we passively take in and soak in that I think sometimes I just snap at people. Sometimes I snap at those who mean well for me because that's the only space of comfort that I have. So, I feel like these are the people I can vent my anger and frustration on. But given the circumstances, I think I'm holding up pretty well with the strength and the courage of my family and my friends and people who love me and support me. I think that the fact that when somebody says, Oh, I have named my child after you. When somebody says, I went for Hajj and I did a Tawaf in your name," When somebody said, I went to church this morning and I prayed for you. When a Hindu says, I want to tie a thread around your wrist so that it protects you. This is what I have earned. There's an Urdu world, this is my Sarmaya. This is what I have earned. And honestly, there is nothing that compares to this earning. That is the goodwill that I have earned of people. That people look up to me. That girls, Muslim girls and girls who are living a life of prejudice and discrimination, look up to me and see a semblance of hope in me. I think Allah has gifted me this honour and I'll forever be grateful to Allah for giving me this honour and this platform and this position in life yes like everybody who is in a position where they can make a difference they will have to go through public scrutiny. They will have to go through intimidation. They will have to go through tough moments. And that is something I have reconciled over the years that I should stop fighting my anxieties. It's natural, it's normal. Nothing that I'm experiencing and nothing that my fellow journalists experience is abnormal. In fact, we are doing remarkably well given the circumstances. So I think that's where
0: I am. You know, the interesting thing is you call it normal, but your response to it and how you're handling it, that is a feat in itself. I was reading comments on your tweets and believe you me, as I was scrolling through those comments, I had tears in my eyes. I kept on thinking, I don't know how she does it. And the part which is not, I wouldn't say not normal, but that's admirable is how you're dealing with all of this and how you're handling it. Rana, in the end, given how much you've covered as a journalist and the realities that you've been exposed to, what do you think needs to be done in India to bring about a meaningful change? And what should be the role of foreign countries, especially countries like the U.S.?
1: See, people like me have a great deal of love and support and solidarity from countries the world over. But there are journalists like my colleague Siddiq Kappan has been behind bars for two years. Today, the judge, the court refused him bail yet again. What's his crime? He was on his way to report a story of a gang rape of a lower caste girl. He had not even reported that story, but he has been behind bars for two years. And there are hundreds of stories like that. There are journalists in Kashmir who are being silenced. Human rights activists in India are being silenced. I think it's time we speak for those whose cases are not very high profile, who do not have a massive following on Twitter, The world needs to see India through the prism of a democracy whose democratic values need to be protected for the well-being of the world. That's what everybody should be doing.
0: Thank you again. For being on this show, Rana. And I am so excited that you will be in Chicago in fall. I have family in Chicago. So whenever I am in Chicago, I am going to ping you and ask you to have coffee with me, if that's okay. Absolutely. It's a deal. It's a deal, Sal. Thank you. Not coffee, chai. I was told that you like chai. I love chai. We'll have chai. Thank you, Rana. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Wow, I am in awe of Rana's work and I was starstruck throughout the interview as some of you can probably tell from my voice during the conversation. Next week, we bring you the second part of this two-part series which will focus on Pakistan's silence on Uyghur genocide in China. What does it mean for Pakistan? How are human rights negotiated in return for strategic allyship? And what does it mean for world peace and prosperity? This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Sana Khan. Our editorial review was done by Yudi Liu, our editor and sound designer. For this episode is Manny Simone. Until next time, take care. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.